we've been very lucky here to have uh, a, a bunch of guests that are that are known uh, nationally and internationally. And tonight's guest is one of those people, uh, Rich Gassaway. Uh, we were just re reminiscing. Uh, Rich Gassaway has been talking about situational matters, situational awareness matters for a long, long time. Uh, I'm going to let him talk about his uh, his pedigree and his experience. But I remember when uh, he first started this message, and he was literally a prophet with this message. Uh, he was still a, a fire chief. He was also going to college uh, to get his doctorate, which he was successful in doing. Um, and then now uh, it's at the point now where he is just I mean, after like 17, 18 years at the FDIC, he's actually left that forum and gone to more of an international forum. Um, and he has just a wide, just a wide array of stuff that um, he offers dealing with situational awareness. So that's what we're going to uh, primarily talk about tonight. Um, again, uh, Rich is one of those guys you know, out of the blue, I send him an email and say, listen, I got this tiny little show, um, but we think your message is an important message. Do you think you could, you could come on? Yep. No problem. What day do you want? We settle on a day and bam, this U.S. fire administrator says, I really need that day. Call him up on the phone. Rich, I got to bump you. And he's going, whatever you need, whatever you need, we'll do that. So I want to really personally say thank you in front of everybody for that. That was very kind. You could have been a stickler, but uh, but you you let us have and and, and Lori is a hoot. The doctor Lori is a hoot, and uh, we really actually got a lot a lot out of that. And again, all of these things uh, for our group. In case anybody that doesn't know, all of these things are available on Spotify, on Apple, and all those other uh, all those other mediums. Couple of housekeeping pieces. You might notice that you're all you have all been muted. That is what we do when we start here. Jamie, my partner here, uh, is taking care of our technology, and because of past experiences, we um, we mute everybody at first, and we we remind everybody that you're welcome to have your camera on. Just be cognizant of where you're doing and where you are when you have your camera on, and I'll stop there. So, uh, do I call you chief? Do I call you doctor? What? What? Or just rich? Rich. Okay. <laughs> uh, so let's let's go back to the beginning. I mean, you're you you're a fire chief. Did the situational awareness start before you were chief, or is that something that developed as you were chief? No, it didn't come along till I'd been 25 years into my fire service career, and. Uh, I had uh, it started in, started in '79 in my hometown outside of Pittsburgh. Then from there, I went to Ohio and became a fire. I was a, took a fire chief's job in Ohio. Was there uh, a little over ten years. Then I moved to Minnesota, where I live now, and for a fire chief's job. And that was in '99. Uh, and then in 2004 is when I uh, went back to school. Now, the ambition to go back to school had been there for quite a while. But what wasn't there 
was the money to pay for it. <laughs> so I uh, kept putting it off saying, you know, I had four kids and I was, uh, uh, you know, trying to work my career and help help my wife raise the kids and just never seemed like the right time, never the right time, never the right time. And finally, I just said, I don't think it's ever going to be the right time. Yeah. So I, I just, uh, I did it with student loans. Uh, you know, it almost puts a sour taste in my mouth to say that I did that, but that was the only way I was going to do it. And uh, the inspiration for it was, I was uh, for a long time, a student of firefighter casualty reports, near misses and line of duty death reports. And I kept asking myself, how could so many smart, talented, experienced responders not see the bad things coming in time to prevent a bad outcome? And I thought there must be something more to it than what's coming out in the NIOSH reports and, and in the other fatality reports and the near misses. And so that's what started the journey. And it was uh, five years to complete that degree, which was, uh, some would say part-time, but it took about 30 hours a week uh, to be able to do the um, the schoolwork. And then, I don't know if you know much about how a, a doctoral program works, but you do, um, you have to do a certain amount of schoolwork, and that took about two and a half years. And then after that, you do your research, your dissertation. Uh, research and then you have to write and publish your dissertation and that took about two and a half years and it was about 30 hours a week on top of working my fire chief's job which was probably 45 to 50 hours a week you know how that goes and uh so I finished it in 08 and uh, I actually started teaching some classes at FDIC and some other places on the topic based on the things that I was learning even before I finished the degree. So the, the classes started in, in with my first introduction was a program at FDIC called Decision-Making Under Stress. And uh, there, there's, there's a story behind that. I won't go into the details, but um, uh, long story short, when it come 10 minutes before my program was supposed to start, there was nobody in the room and I was panicking because I thought nobody's interested in this topic. And then 10 minutes later, the room was not only full, maybe 15 minutes. The room was not only full. They were asking people to scoot down to make room for the people that were standing along the walls. And and now I was from a I went from the panic of nobody's coming to the panic of, oh my God, what I hope I don't waste 300 people's time as I present on this. And what kept them from coming in, which I wasn't really thinking, was you know the the morning opening session was going on and nobody everybody was in the opening session. So nobody's going to come to the breakouts until the opening session's done, but that wasn't what was on my mind. What was on my mind was I had an empty room. And then and then all of a sudden I had a very, very full room. And uh, I went from one form of panic to a completely another form of panic. And I wondered if the message was gonna resonate. Turns out it resonated very well with the attendees and had a lot of people wanting to ask me questions. We had to clear the room to make room for the next program for the next speaker. So went out in the hall, ended up talking to about 40 people like in a little, <laughs> I don't know, a little powwow session uh, outside the classroom. And that's that was the first time I really knew that I was on to something that the fire service was going to find some value in. What and then and then from there it's just it's just growing. I left my fire chief's job in 2009 
to be able to commit to this full time. Um, you know, some uh, some might say I retired. Well, I was, yeah, but I was only 48 <laughs> and, and I wasn't of retirement age. So let's just call it what it is. I quit. And uh, that was a that was a very nervous time for my wife and and myself because I went from having a job where, you know, you're going to get a guaranteed payday every two weeks to saying, well, I, I think I want to just go out and teach these classes to people. And my wife's like, how are we going to, how are we going to feed and put shoes on the kids if you're going to do that? So it just took a lot of, a lot of faith and believing in the message that it really would have some value to the, to the fire service. And sure enough, it did. And has since grown to beyond the fire service to other domains that, you know, where people work in high risk, high consequence environments as well. I would have never thought then that would have ever turned into what it's turned into today and that I would have been where I have been, all the places that I've had the opportunity to go. If you'd have told me that then, I would have said, Nick, you're you're delusional, you know, you're 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 on mushrooms or something that's that's clouding your your good uh, judgment there because that would never happen. And then over these last years, it's it's all happened. And I'm just so thankful that there's been so many opportunities to share the message. And it, it, it's it's number one, it's an important message. But boy, that's a that's like stepping off the plank that you yeah. right because you're you know, my, my situation was a little bit dinner that a little bit different. They said, you're 60 years old, get out. So I had to, it was time to go. Um, and, 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 and Dan Tompkins is being kind by not applauding, but it was, it was time to go. Uh, and so I had a little different uh, scenario, but again, uh, ended up very lucky and get to go out to India and, and do some stuff, but it is a nauseating feeling waiting for that group to come in <laughs> And then no, I didn't yeah. have the I haven't had the rooms packed as you have, but it, but it's cool, and it's kind of neat when um, s- something happens like that, and you're just like, yeah, I said that, or yeah, yeah, we, how can I help you with that? And I think that's one of the things I've seen from you and other successful uh, speakers, for lack of a trade name, is that it's it's not about you, it's about how you can help someone else. And I I gotta tell you, even during the tough times, uh, and, and I've had some tough times with some of the folks in this room, even during the tough times, it was when you're able to opportunity to help somebody else, you just get that, that feeling that, you know what, you did something really good today. And maybe you're having some bumps, but you took some bumps away from somebody else. Right, and it, it 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 can just go on. I would also uh, agree or comment on. Um, listen, I love NIOSH. I, I quote NIOSH a lot in my part time job here. Um, before uh, I left, uh, asked the guys. I read all, every NIOSH thing, and we tried to tie in as much as possible. But we still see the same four or five things every single time. Yeah, every single time. And well, they uh, let me just finish this thought process because I'm an old guy and it'll go <laughs> the the assessment process of the risk assessment, it which which is that situational awareness. We're still weak. We're, we're I, I believe we're still weak in that process. I don't 
either we're so much robotic that we're not able to hit the pause button or or it or it's never been it's never been planted in our garden it's never been planted in our heads yeah let me uh let me share one thing about the nash reports that when i when i was doing my research um the foundation of it in addition to situational awareness is, is human factors and human error and as i would look at the nash reports the nash reports were nearly devoid of anything discussing human error in fact they never said anything about any individual human ever making any error so i found myself um it's interesting because before i did my before i entered the phd program i was I would read the NASH reports and I'd say, these are really valuable to me. Once I entered my program and started doing my research, when I read a NASH report, I came away with more questions than I had answers because I was looking at it from a different lens now. And so finally, I, I got to the point where I'm, I said, these NASH reports aren't really being as helpful to me as I thought they were going to be related to situational awareness and human error and such. So I, I contacted NIOSH and I said, uh, I'd like to be able to interview the investigators because I've got questions for them on some of these reports that I'm just wondering if they have answers and I'd like to talk with them. Well, you can imagine the hoops that I had to jump through to be able to get the opportunity to actually talk to investigators. So I jumped through all the hoops, signed all the paperwork that they needed There's to, made a couple all the promises. Gave them, gave them two blood samples of my firstborn child. And uh, so in the end, I got the chance to talk to investigators on the premise that I would maintain anonymity as to who they were and anonymity as to which line of duty death we were talking about. So, I mean, when I would talk to them, I, I knew who they were and I knew which LODD they were talking about. But when, my, when I did my research, I couldn't identify them by name or the actual LODD incident by name. But I, I mentioned this because when I got the chance to actually talk to the investigators, what I found out, you know, started asking them my questions, they had all the answers to all my questions. In fact, they all, every one of them that I talked to seemed relieved that someone would think to ask such questions. Like they they were they were more than willing to say oh yeah oh yeah that 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 was that was definitely in play that was definitely in play and then i said well why didn't why why is this in the niosh report and they would inevitably say it was but it was removed <laughs> or or we've been told not to include anything that implicates the errors in decision making of any individual and then yeah. i'm like well how are we supposed to learn about human error if we don't talk about human error? I mean, you know, error is, human error is very specific to humans. Well, here, it all makes sense in the end, Nick, when you think about it. NIOSH has to be invited in to do an investigation. Right. They don't have the authority to say, sure. we're coming in. They have to be invited in. And as it was explained to me, in order to continue to be able to be invited in, we can't put the hot spotlight on any individual especially a commander or a chief of any individual organization or the word will spread quick and we'll stop getting invited in so there are all these 
things that relate to flawed situational awareness of individuals, human error of individuals, the human factors that are flawing decisions of individuals don't get included. And therefore, you see these canned recommendations. I mean, you can you can almost almost cut and paste them report to report to report. And so I'll give you an example. Like there was a LODD and I can't cite you which one, but it, um, a firefighter died inside of a residential dwelling and there was a thermal imager on the apparatus that didn't get taken inside when the firefighters went inside to fight the fire. And that's, that's probably 15 different LODD reports if you, if you want to spend some time with them. But so the recommendation is that, that NIOSH puts out is that a, the firefighters should take the thermal imager inside the house when they go inside to fight a fire. To which my question, to you know, the, my point of view is, well, thank you for giving us a recommendation that is the absolute most obvious thing that somebody could say. What I want to know is why they didn't take it in. Right. Not that they were supposed to. Why didn't they? Why weren't they thinking about it? What were they thinking about? Are thermal imagers never taken in on residential fires? Do they not train enough with them? There's there, you know, there's a backstory to why that thermal imager didn't get off that truck and was, go inside. Was it that. a was it a policy to bring it in and they just disregarded it? Right. So you don't you don't know. You know, you don't know, you know what happened, but you don't know why it happened. And then the recommendation is just do what you're just do the obvious, take the camera in with you. I don't, I don't think any firefighter would read that in a recommendation and say, well, thank you. I never thought about taking a thermal imager inside of a fire. That was so brilliant that we're going to go back and change the way we do everything. And, you know, and I, and I like what NIOSH does. I like the fact that somebody is doing something to share lessons. So I don't want to make it sound like, you know, this is the rich bash NIOSH show. I'm, I'm, a fan of what they do. I just think there's an opportunity to do more, but I don't know exactly how to get them to be able to do more when they still, you know, when they have to be invited in. So they have to stay on the popularity side of, you know, it's kind of like the kid wanting to be invited to the party. You have to be popular enough to get the invitation or, or you learn nothing, no good comes from it. So, you know, they're not like OSHA who can mandate themselves into the door, into the front door. OSHA has to get the invite. So how, when and how does that resolve? I don't know. But I do know this is that behind the, every one of those NIOSH reports, and I know this from doing enough behind the scenes work, that there is much more to the story than is being shared. And I, I I've think, even talked to people who've had LODDs that have said the NIOSH report only shared 70% of the story. And then when I talked to the investigators, that's what they said too, that, you know, the rest of the story gets set onto the sidelines because, you know, can't put the hot light on any individual. Um, so you mentioned the NASH. I just, I hope I didn't go too far down a rabbit hole no, with that. No, not at all, because, so we uh, offered a class at our local, uh, our local fire academy called, so you want to be a fire officer. <laughs> and what are the things, so each group, and this was a non-certification front seat sitting you know this is literally the bumps and grinds that so i digress in connecticut 
volunteer fire company primarily, um, get a new guy, he's real active, um, starts coming around a lot. Hey, we'll set him to firefighter one. We set him to firefighter one. He loves it. She loves it. They get into it. Firefighter two, they're really grooving on it. They're coming all the time. Eh, that's the next officer. Now they may have the, the firefighter two and only been to one structure fire the entire time and didn't have to be in charge of it, but they're active, they're educated, and they don't have a lot of seasoning, but they're there. So our mission was season them to the best we could without you know burning at the stake. So, but what we did was we broke them into teams and each team had to present one of the Connecticut line of duty deaths over the last 10, 15 years. I love that. So, but we, it gets better. So what they had to do was get any document and we got them every document, we, every written piece of paper on those events. Some were NIOSH, some were Department of Transportation, some were whatever it was, insurance company investigations. So they had to do a half an hour presentation on the line of duty death. Sitting in the audience or at that time on Zoom was someone who was there and a friend or responsible in that event. So they presented what they understood from what they read, and then they told them what really happened. Mm. And it was a it was an eye-opening event for them because, and I mean, a, a dear friend of mine was an incident commander during a line of duty death, took a beating on it, but he was there and he was open and honest about things that happened how he performed, the, the lasting effects of that um, and all that kind of stuff. But we had someone from each one of those events and they clarified those, those points, those things in the background that you didn't know about, right? To, to, to share that with them. And that was, that was just critical. I, I find in our business as a safety company, whether I'm watching stuff from FDN, you know, I'm, I watch way too much YouTube. Or I'm watching that or whatever, maybe even the active shooter yesterday, whatever it is, my, my instinctual thing is I'm looking at it from a safety perspective, as well as a functional perspective, right? And a lot of times that's not the case, right? We, we, again, someone's, someone was supposed to do one thing and move left or move right or whatever it was, and the wheels came off the bus, right? Something happened that was either predictable which is the irritating part, or not, right? And I think that's what the situational awareness is the, is the spotlight that we need to be directing at whatever the event is. And it doesn't have to be an emergency. I think that's what your, what your life is now, right? We start, you started out looking at emergencies. Now we're looking, <laughs> we're looking at HR emergencies, right? Where someone comes in and does something stupid to another person and it's like to an hr person that's like a fourth alarm fire and there and how did this happen where did this you know how could this have happened hello right right yeah situational awareness is not just for emergency scenes <laughs> it's got a got a broader application but even even if not especially administratively um now, which uh, you said you had one of your guests on the show that was uh, teaching a class. Yeah, so uh, he actually, his class has dropped off. Pete Bonomi okay. is the president of the, he's a retired fire chief. 
and he is uh, president of the Instructors Association, and he teaches a class up in Springfield, Massachusetts, at one of the community colleges, okay. at the tech, tech college. Um, sure. And he he may be back. He he may not be. I don't know. He'll okay. one way or the other. He'll show this broadcast to his class. Okay. But he's been he's been around and seen quite a bit. So um, and we appreciate him and inviting his class to sit in. He might also. He he he's like me when it comes to computers. He may be back three more times because um, sometimes his computer acts up. Um, yeah. He was he was trying to find a plug for it the last time we talked to him. So, well, um, perhaps Nick, for the for the benefit of those who are who are live with us now, or those who would catch the rebroadcast in the future, maybe we should just take a pause and talk about what situational awareness is. And Absolutely. That's, that's, that's exactly I, I, why you're I think here. there's a lot of people who intuitively know it's important, um, but they may not, they may struggle when it comes to actually defining, you know, what it is and how you develop it. So let's just you have the floor. Maybe lay a found. Yeah, it won't take, but just a moment. Situation definition, situation awareness is a, is a person's ability to perceive and understand what's happening in the environment around them while being mindful about how time is passing because as time passes, conditions change. And as conditions change, well, then so should their awareness. And then the next part is really maybe the most valuable of first responders. And that is being able to accurately predict what's going to happen in the future and to be able to make those predictions in time to prevent a bad outcome. Now, embedded in that definition are three key words, perception, understanding, and prediction. And those are the three component parts of situational awareness. You can't really have strong situational awareness without having all three component parts. In fact, when I teach it, I teach it in the frame that I use as building a house. You have to first have a foundation. On the foundation, you put walls on the walls, you put a roof. And that's how, I, and during the class, that's how I talk about situation awareness. The foundation is perception, the walls are understanding, and the roof is prediction. And you have to have, all, you know, you have to have a strong foundation or the walls are not going to hold up. And you have to have solid walls to hold the roof up. So the, the how-to perceive how to understand and how to predict in the classes that I teach actually can take anywhere from two to three hours to mm. explain that, but in a friendly way. I mean, even though I'm teaching neuroscience, that's my PhD, I do it in a friendly way. No anatomy, no physiology. It's not a biology lecture. In fact, I use, you know, I use analogies like building a house and uh, I use these different analogies to help to help the students not only understand the component parts, but I want them to be able to go back and share it with their department, you know, share it with somebody that they're, you know, maybe at a drill with that, you know, that they're doing, you know, fire attack drill or auto extrication, and they can bring up something about what they learned in the class while they're there, you know, doing hands-on stuff, the sexy stuff, as I would call it. Um, and, so that it, it takes a little a little unpacking to explain the three 
parts and how you actually how do you actually perceive the world you know it's it's probably kind of a mystery about how the world can or how the brain can take in everything that's happening from the five senses and make sense out of it all mm. so i kind of pull yeah. the curtain back and explain explain how 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 that how that happens so there's no no mystery about how you're able to see and understand or hear and understand or not see things you know how you can actually be blind to what's happening right in front of you or be deaf to the things that are happening right in front of you and then how to uh so basically you know if i could just sum it up in the most simplest form perception is gathering up jigsaw puzzle pieces understanding is assembling the jigsaw puzzle to give you a picture of understanding and then prediction is being able to take the picture that you have and anticipate what the next picture is going to be. Uh, in other words, get out ahead of what is happening right now and say, okay, here's what's happening here and now. What's going to happen two minutes from now or five minutes from now that could lead to a tragic outcome? In other words, getting ahead of the present to mentally look into the future. I mean, that's what we do when we're driving a vehicle. You know, you get down the highway at 70 miles an hour. Your eyes are not looking one foot in front of the bumper. That's the present. Your eyes are looking into the future, you right. know, five, 500 feet out, looking beyond what is happening, looking into the future to see what's going to happen next so that you have reaction time to be able to not hit a down tree or not hit a deer that's standing in the road or a vehicle that is slowed down um I, I think one of the important parts is uh or two two critical things one you're fighting with mother nature now that that is somewhat that's somewhat predictable and number two you want you're on the clock right so it's so and again i i don't mean this as any insult at all but in in listening to the buffalo call the the most the most recent lodd they're they're trying to put all those all those things in line. They're reacting to the feedback and the conditions they're seeing, right? But there's, but as in many cases, again, they're on the clock. The building is under demolition. Is we may not, we can't, we don't have X-ray vision, and unless we've been in that building a lot and numerous times. We, we may not be ready for the backdraft or we may not be ready for the collapse or, or whatever. It was obvious once that first pop hit that then, but he had already, re, he had already ordered everybody out of the building when, when that, when that, they were retreating when that, when that first, that first blow hit. And then after that, it was, it, again, then it was physics. Yeah. Let me, let me say one thing here, Nick, because I don't want, I don't want to mislead your audience and I certainly would never want to lead miss some mislead somebody who's trying to learn from me that if you have strong situational awareness that you'll be able to prevent or avoid all possible tragedy that is never the message the better your situational awareness the better the probability that you're going to make good decisions and therefore potentially have a better outcome like if I said, you know, if you had good situation awareness, you're looking 700 feet out ahead of your car as you're driving at 70 miles an hour. So you don't hit something that's in the road 700 feet ahead of you. Yeah. But if that deer bolts out of the weeds eight feet in front of your car when you're doing 70, no amount of situational awareness is going to keep you from hitting that deer. You're going to hit that deer. 
because <laughs> you don't have reaction time. So as I talk about situation awareness, I'm trying to, to help, help people be able to anticipate things in enough to have reaction time. You can have flawless situational awareness and still get killed. So like when you look about like what happened in, in Buffalo, when you have, when you have, if you have a rapid, unpredictable change in conditions and with emphasis, maybe on unpredictable, because there's some things that happen, you know, when it happens, it usually happens quickly, but is the lead up to something, you know, can you, can you see the clues and indicators of a lead up to something like a, say a flashover, you know, there's usually some strong indications of smoke color, thickness, volume, density that are precursors, warning signs that flashover is, you know, build, it's building to the crescendo. But when it flashes, it happens so fast that there's really nothing you can do once it happens. But can you anticipate the lead up to it by being able to understand the clues that are are the precursor to tragedy? And I, I think in, in in some cases you can't. And in many cases you can, if you know what you're looking for, if you understand what the clues mean and swallow hard people, if you choose not to ignore them because you get so mission driven, so mission focused, that no matter what the clues or indicators are, you're still gonna go aggressively interior, irregardless of what the conditions are telling you. And I think, and that happens. And, we have and, a great example out of Los Angeles. So the the fire where the the firefighters were coming down the ladder and they got burned, right? Yep. So the kid yep. that was on the engine, the kid that was on the engine, he's making his stretch underneath them, and he comes to a ladder. He comes to an A-frame ladder, and he says, "Well, this is going to be a pain." So he says, "So he goes through. He goes, I hope this doesn't get in, in my way on the way out." And this is his words. This is, I'm not making this up, right? And he gets in there. Now everything goes sideways when all the everything's popping. And he and the and the, and the ladder gets him. The, the ladder jacks him and another partner up, and they end up getting their safe, their um axe caught and all this other stuff. And it it impacts their ability to leave. They eventually get out, thank God. And they got burned, they got they got injured, but they managed to get out. But it's that it's nines, it's 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 station nine. We go, we put the fires out. We're, we're in the, you know, we're in the roughest part of town. This is what we do. We, we take risks and we put the fires out. That's because we're nines. Right. And we see that. I, I, I think we see that sometimes. And I'm, I'm, and I'm just saying that that's something he identified from his experience as a problem in that scenario. On the other hand, up on the roof, we had some great situational awareness that something's I just got a bad feeling it's time to go. And if they hadn't left when they left, conditions, I mean, the, the captain's not going to be a fireman anymore, not a tactical fireman anymore. But he at least said, no, it's time to go. We got to go. We got to go right now. And he's, you know, he's calling back saying, "Get it, we, we, we're getting out of here. We're getting out of here because some something tricked him in his head that some situational and awareness ticked him in his head that this is going bad. And it's going to go get worse before it gets better. Mm -hmm. Right. So how do I, so how do I take, 
So how do I take um, a new officer, a young new officer? What's my uh, baby steps for uh, getting them to look beyond the nozzle, getting them to look beyond this immediate, this immediate problem? I can think of a couple of ways you could help a new officer. Um, when you say look beyond the nozzle, I think what, what I think I hear you saying is how to get them better at being with predictive abilities to be able to get beyond what's happening, like right, right in front of their nose and to be able to uh, anticipate or see things that are going to be potentially problematic. <laughs> Just just down the road, so to speak, you know, thirty yeah. seconds to two minutes to five minutes, and I and I think there's I think there's a way to help people develop <clears throat> predictive abilities. One one thing that comes to mind is to, uh, and you as the instructor might um, you know do good to facilitate this by you handpicking or cherry picking some YouTube videos of of incidents and play the play the video partial, you know, part of the way through and stop it where you think it's good to stop and then ask them based on everything you've seen and heard, what do you think is going to happen next? And I'll get, I'll even give you the benefit of coming up with three or four possible scenarios of things that are going to happen next. And hopefully, hopefully as they get better at this, they'll, one of those two or three or four things they would guess would actually be the thing that's going to happen. You know, because when you when you pause at any point, you say, what do you think is going to happen? A lot of different scenarios could come to mind, but hopefully one of them is the, the accurate thing. But as, say they come up with three different things, then you could say that, okay, let's say the first thing that you think could happen does happen. What would be your action now, right at this moment on the front end before it, you know, like say me, they say, well, I think the roof's going to collapse. Okay, well, you're this firefighter, you know, maybe you got the helmet cam, you're inside, based on what you saw before you made entry, entry and the fire was already through the roof and, and you think the, and the, and the roof is going to collapse. If that's your predictive um, view, what could you do now proactively to not be caught in the collapse of that roof? And is there any amount of water that you're going to be able to spray, any amount of, of tool work you're going to be able to do that would prevent you from being caught in a roof collapse? So what you're getting them to do is think about future potential outcomes and then actions that they can proactively take to not be caught up in the consequence of a future potential outcome. So, and maybe maybe the video you're watching, maybe it never turns out that way at all. Maybe, maybe the roof never does collapse, but what you've got them doing is thinking about the potential for it and what they would do. You know, maybe they'd say, well, I would call to the exterior and ask for the roof condition. Okay, well, if they call, if somebody on the interior calls the exterior and says, what's the roof condition? They're thinking about, the future, because they're th basically they have some worry about that roof that's causing them to call back to the command and say, "What's that roof looking like?" Because I, you know, I wasn't feeling the love for it when we came in, and I don't think it's gotten any better. So now I'm thinking, if that roof condition is worsening, maybe we should be leaving. So well, that's one way of of using 
video to kind of prompts, you know, in pausing it and prompting somebody to think about future potential outcomes. Another thing you could um, use is a very powerful tool called mental rehearsal. Mental rehearsal is visualizing yourself in a scenario before it ever really happens. When I got promoted to be a chief officer, I went from being company officer, you know, the one who leads a crew on a hose line inside, which of which, you know, I won't say that I was like all the shit about it. Oh, oh wait a minute, you probably <laughs> all that in <laughs> the bag of chips. Yeah, but I wasn't all that good. I mean, I was okay at it, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't FDNY interior skilled. You know, I'd, I'd seen some fire from the interior, but my comfort level was leading a crew with a hose line going inside. Now, all of a sudden, I got to stay at the command car, wear a vest, have a radio and a clipboard and be in charge. And that was a really uncomfortable transition for me because I was much more comfortable doing the hands-on work than I was the mental management of, of an incident. And I contacted uh, a mentor and I said, you know, I'm really struggling with this. How do I make this transition? Cause you know, every, every fiber in my body wants to jump on that hose line. And I know that I don't, I don't serve well if I, if I do that. And it was then that he introduced me to what I now call mental rehearsal. He didn't call it mental rehearsal then, but here's what he said to me. He says, what you need to do to get your comfort level with being a commander is you need to go around town and burn down every building. And I said to him, that sounds a lot like arson, and I don't want to spend the rest of my life in jail. <laughs> and he laughed, and he said, no, not for real, in your mind. In your mind, mentally rehearse a building on fire. You're in charge. What's it going to look like? What are your orders going to be? What are the crews going to do? How are the conditions going to change? And then he says, once you get good at like, you know, being successful at it, then build some complication in, like you send a crew in, like when you're first learning, you send a crew in, they're going to go in, they're going to knock the fire down, black smoke's going to turn to white smoke, you know, they're going to come out carrying the kitten and, you know, every, the, everything, everybody lives happily ever after. He says, once you get good at having all these successful outcomes, build some complication into it. Like they're on the inside and, you know, they're spraying water and they're saying, we're getting a hit on it. And from the exterior, you just see black smoke. You don't see any white smoke. And, you know, and thinking about what does that mean and what's making them think they're getting a hit when they're actually not getting a hit. And what does that mean for the building integrity? And what does it mean for the changing smoke condition and the potential for a flashover? And, and he said, well, as you're doing these mental rehearsals, what you're doing is you're, anticipating you get to where you can anticipate bad things so that you can practice your decision making of what you would do if you faced these conditions or these scenarios so i'm probably explaining it a lot more elaborately than the way he explained it to me 25 years ago this is way before i knew any of the situational awareness stuff as you know because this is when i was first making my transition to from company officer to chief officer uh late 80s early 90s and uh so i i took his advice and i started i even got my like my command worksheet you know all the way back from like when, when you know when remember when brunacini first came out yeah. with his incident yep. command and there was the worksheets that were in the the workbook and that was that was my first incident command sheet because i we never had anything before that and i was actually you know filling out the 
worksheets and imagining in my mind what the crews were going to be saying and what my what my staffing was going to be because I had a we were paid on call department so you know I could end up with an engine with six or an engine with two you know and and of course when I was first rehearsing every engine had six because I didn't want the complication <laughs> of trying to manage an incident understaffed you know so then as I got better at it then I started building in the complication of you know understaffed my my first ladder got in an accident on the way to the scene and you know built all these things in that that changed actually stressed me and changed the way that I would look at these pretend incidents and what happened for me Nick is that it started to build this um library a, data, a database of yep. knowledge of scenarios and what if scenarios and complicated scenarios and oh my god scenarios and and then when i found myself facing real incidents i was able to say to myself well i've managed through incidents like this already i've got experience already on an incident like this that experience may be um only a mental rehearsal but my brain still stores the memory of that experience as if it was real. The brain can be tricked that way. You know, it's just like when you go to a scary movie and Jason comes out with a chainsaw and the, everybody in the theater screams, why are they screaming? Ain't nothing coming off that screen going to hurt you. Why are you screaming? Because your brain has been tricked into making you think you're actually part of that scene. And the same mental trickery that they use in theaters to immerse us into a story we can immerse ourselves into a story that allows us to to, to develop a memory of what to do and if you do enough of these mental rehearsals and this is what i teach in when i'm doing my industry classes too <laughs> having these workers do these mental rehearsals the last thing i would ever want in say an industrial setting is for an industrial worker to look over and say, oh my God, there's a leak of ethyl methyl kill you quick. I never thought in a million years that would ever happen to me. No, what I'd rather them look over there and see that leak and say, you know what? I've mentally rehearsed, mentally rehearsed what I was going to do if this ever happened 50 times. And now I'm not surprised that it actually did happen. And now I've already thought through my thought processes, my skills, my actions, my what ifs. So that's one thing I would really want to see new officers focus on is these because they can do it themselves. They don't have to uh, they don't have to have somebody facilitate a mental rehearsal. It can help to have somebody there to throw them the what ifs and the what ifs and well, what would you do if this and what would you do if this and and if they're new and they don't know, then you can serve as the coach and kind of help them, you know, well, think about it this way and I mean, I'm a big fan of letting them come to their own solutions instead of giving them the solutions. Uh, you know, I, th I think they learn better when they're when the, what they're going to do comes out of their mouth instead of out of your mouth as the instructor. You know, just coach them and get them to that conclusion. And as with every fire, not everything, not every one of them is going to turn out well. But you know, there's an old saying: we learn more from the mistakes that we've made in life than the things that we do well. We've so, so many times. There's so many times we're very close to having a bad situation and pure luck and the right, the all those stars lined up and we end up going, I don't know how we just did that, but 
you know, we had to, but I got to tell you, I love, I still do that. I, and I still do that where I'll, whether I'm sitting in lately, whether I'm sitting in church or sitting in, in front of my daughter's school, my brain's working as of late, my brain's working um, for what happens if, what happens if, but we, and, and again, you can program that's all that program. One of the things that I, I'm jealous about in the industrial settings is if the places run well, you know what's there. You know what you're using. There are steps you can take. Now, it can, sometimes problems still happen, but even when you've taken the right steps, you can minimize that impact of that problem happening. Um, and I think you can do that to an extent, I agree with you 110%, that you know, to, to a certain point, if I'm in a brick building versus a wood building versus whatever, the hazards that we have in that neighborhood or whatever, we, we should be able to, to lay that out either from experience or from walkthroughs or whatever. That's the one thing that impresses me about the, the squads and the, the, the high-tech people down in New York, or even in actually most companies, is they're, they're looking at what's happened to their brothers and sisters and other folks and saying, we gotta, we could have this here, what are we gonna do? And then they, and I matter of fact, I was listening to the Chief Lieb last night, I wanna try to get him on, and just listening to how he looks at the whole job and trying to come up from experiences local and far away to how to prevent us from getting into that jam. Um, and, I, and again, that goes back to that foreshadowing out looking out figuring it out and again you could you could be sitting at a traffic light you don't have to have a pen a paper newspaper you don't have to have your phone out to take pictures if you just look at that and you go that's going to be a hell of a stretch that's going to be we had a lot for example down on the river we have a lot of buildings that are two stories on the front and four stories on the back it's just the way the buildings are built on the river buildings have been there since the whaling days so they're all balloon frame, right? I hated that area because it, it, for me, that was like at high risk. And we actually, we actually burnt down a, uh, a tackle shop with distinction down there based because of, uh, of uh, balloon frame and a six inch tongue and groove cellar door. Um, so, you know, there's some things that are gonna screw you up that you're not seeing before. But again, if we can, that's where the, the senior, we did a program on the senior man. If you if you have a senior person that's been through those doors before and they share that information, that's one more piece of intel, right? That could help with your situational awareness, right? You don't have to have gone through the thing yourself if you've been next to someone who has, and they said, see that thing right there? A good example, see that? That's, got, that's a six inch tongue and groove door off of a whaling ship. This is going to be a problem. You're going to need to use a partner saw. In our case, we used a hydraulic tool to break it open. It, it was not foreseen. It looked like a regular door. It wasn't foreseen. You know, uh, complimenting what what the the story that you shared. I think coming back to the NIOSH reports, I think there's a lot that firefighters can 
learn from tragedy as well. As you talked about that, those buildings that are two stories in the front and four stories in the back. On Bryceland Street in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, three firefighters died in a structure fire that was two stories in the front and four stories in the back. <laughs> and uh, there, and I, they, your viewers and listeners can look that report up Bryceland Street in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and there are less there are lessons to learn about um, how street level um, street level view of a structure might not match the C uh, side view of a structure, and then how that changes how people look at information that is being shared during the the incident because they they had a crew go in the front uh that went down one level that was in the basement but then they went down another level and they were actually down two levels and they thought they were down one level and then they got disoriented and they called a mayday and another crew went in and they went down to the basement, but only one level. Then they found a crew there and they got out with that crew and they said, okay, everybody's out. We're all, you know, crew that was in the basement, they're out, we're out, everybody's out. Well, not everybody was out because they were down and, one and, and it's not a one-time one and it's not yeah. a one-time thing. So they did it in Washington, DC. Same yeah. exact scenario. Listen, yeah. if you look at and, the if you look at the Boylston fire, it's a little bit, it's a little bit different with some some fire float, some air dynamics, but it's you think you're one spot and you're actually in another, right? And here we yeah, have yeah. crews right outside, but they don't, there's that. So it's not a, it's something we can learn from is what I'm, I'm trying to babble out. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I absolutely love that you talked about having those students um, teach the lessons from the line of duty deaths that, that in your state and then and then complimenting and having somebody who was actually involved in the incident even take that learning to another level it's it nick i don't know whether i can't say i can't say it any other way than to say how disappointed i am when i teach a class and i have 100 people in the room and i say how many of you have read near miss reports on the ifc website and maybe four hands out of a hundred go up. And I say, how many of you have read NIOSH line of duty death reports and maybe 10 hands out of a hundred go up. And it, the, as for the things we talked about, the NIOSH reports are not perfect, but there's lessons. Even in their imperfection, there's lessons and people aren't accessing and learning the lessons, which then as you read these, you see that we're just perfecting the way we kill firefighters by doing it again and again and again and again and again. Like we're not learning anything from previous tragedy. And that's unto itself as a tragedy that we would fall into the same hole so many times that we, you know, that you think that somebody would, well, there are organizations that do, but you think that collectively as a profession, we'd say, let's not fall into the same hole 50 times. Let's learn on the 50th and not fall into that hole the 51st time. And then a line of duty death gets announced and you read the preliminary report. And I try not to judge too much off of preliminary reports, but 
you know, investigation comes out and it's cut and paste. Here we go again. You know, it, it's all, we, all too familiar. We, along that same line, we had Burt Clark here um, a couple of three months ago, and he is still beside himself with the fatalities in Baltimore. Uh, just he, he, you know, he, he I'm not going to speak for Bert, but he's pretty upset about it. He spoke for himself. He, it's part of it. It's part of his book, right? I don't want to die trying. Um, but he, but there are some ingrained, and I'm going to leave that department because I could name three or four others. There are some departments where they're just ingrained that this is what we're going to do. And it's 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 almost um, where they've gotten away with what gotten away might not been lucky so many times before that's almost like the it's almost like the normalization of deviance right they've gotten everything lined up just right just right just right so many times that that a shortcut turned into a habit turned into a way of doing things turned into a policy and and now. It, it, and it's a surprise mm-hmm. or that suddenly a bad thing happens when all of those things, all those lucky things don't line up. Right. And that's a hard, that's a hard thing to swallow. I mean, that's a hard thing to even talk about, particularly yeah. if you're of the upbringing and the, and the mental emotional con- construction that we don't go, that we're Marines. We don't go backwards. We go forwards. That's what we do. We're not, we, we, Marines don't have a retreat strategy. It's a big deal for them to retreat. And sometimes we have, this, we have that same strategy and it's hard to, to, cause we want aggressive interior folks, but there are, I mean, 50% of Baltimore are vacants. That number alone made my head explode. But so there's that, what, what's our anticipation there? Are we, do we find people in vacants? Yes. Yes, we do. We've saved numerous people in vacants that were asleep when the fire was in there. Yeah, we do. So we have this, this juggling, this combat, emotional, intellectual combat going on personally, professionally, and as a group to look at these calls and, and say, what do we learn from this? Well, I, th- I think there are windows of opportunity as, as it comes to saving civilians. And I think there's windows of opportunity when it comes to firefighter survival. And I think that the, the balance for aggressiveness, and I'm, I'm, all for, I'm all for being aggressive when the conditions are right to be aggressive, but to be aggressive when the conditions aren't right is foolish. And if you're and if you're foolish and you're successful, it's not because of skill; it's because of luck. And luck will eventually run out. But I think there are these windows of opportunity that if the window if the windows are open and not closing so fast that we can't change an outcome, well, let's get in and save the savable lives and add to it, save the savable property. But if the windows are closing so fast, then to be able to know how fast the windows are closing is a function of smoke and fire conditions and how the, you know, the, the anticipation of a flashover and a structural collapse. If you look and say, how many firefighters that gets either seriously hurt or killed inside of residential dwelling fires 
how many of them happen as a result of a flashover slash thermal assault or some type of structural collapse. In other words, something fell on them or they fell through a floor. And you find out that in the act of firefighting, especially in residential fires, that turns out to be a larger majority of them. So if we can, if we could just get firefighters to just being able to realize these windows of opportunity are closing and the smoke and fire conditions tell us how fast those windows are closing. And it's a function of how much fire there is and how much smoke is being generated and how much the structure is weakening under the stress of the smoke and fire conditions, the windows of opportunity are closing. And if we could look and say, do we have the right resources and enough time to be able to effectively get in, do what we need to do and get ourselves back out before the windows of opportunity close? Because if they close on civilians, we're just bringing out a body. And if they close on us, we're going to be bringing out a firefighter body. And that is, you know, again, in summary fashion, how I would talk with firefighters about situational awareness. I worry that they think, well, if I'm going to go to situational awareness class, this guy's going to tell me that I'm not supposed to go inside, you know, buildings that are on fire. Quite, quite the contrary. I want, I want you to go in and save the savable but I don't want you to die in the process of trying to save unsavable. And there are times when, when the conditions are right and the firefighters go inside and something uh, completely unexpected occurs and it leads to a tragedy. And, you know, people want to judge and say, well, they shouldn't have been in there. And, and I look at that and say, you know, I, I look under some of those and I like, I would have been in there. You know, the conditions were such and the circumstances were such, I would have went and I, you know, and I would have been among the, the firefighters tragically hurt or killed. You know, it, it, I'm not the wrap every firefighter in bubble wrap and always be, you know, defensive in, in mindset. That's, I would fail if I tried to convince firefighters to be something that that they inherently would absolutely abhor me suggesting that they be in mindset. So I try to work with their mindset and say, I, I want you to be inside when the conditions are right. So let's talk about what those right conditions are. I had a, I had a fire chief once that shared with me. He said I was trying to teach my people about you know when you should leave. He said, and I found he found not me he found a video on the internet. Uh, a department was doing some live fire training at an acquired structure. And they finally got to the point where they'd trained enough, trained all day, and it was time to just let the structure burn down. And somebody made a video from the time they lit the last fire until the structure, until the house collapsed. And he said, and I took that video and he said, and I sat fire officers down and said, I'm going to play you this video, and I want you to hit the pause button when you think it would be time to either retreat if you're inside or not go in if you were outside. And he said most of them didn't hit the pause button in time before it collapsed. Like it collapsed, and then they hit the pause button and said, okay, that'd be when I'd come out. <laughs> He's like, no, nope, you, missed, you missed the mark. <laughs> and he said it was it was really telling for him how late in the game people would stay. And that's part of what, you know, Bert Clark 
was uh, speaking to years and years and years ago about firefighters who wouldn't call maydays in time. That's right. You know, they'd, they'd wait, they'd wait till it was beyond, you know, the, talk about the windows of opportunity. They'd wait until the windows of opportunity were so close to being closed or closing that fast on them and then call the mayday. And by then, you know, you can't, <laughs> there's no way that somebody was going to be able to get to them in time. And I, I remember years ago hearing him speak on that. And he wrote some articles on, you know, the, what, why firefighters won't call maydays in time but then i got to talking some to some firefighters who were in perilous situations who didn't call maydays and i said why didn't you call mayday and they'd say well because i i didn't want the ridicule of of my peers right. uh, because i called a mayday so we have this, this whole self-esteem ego balance thing I'll I tell you what, I, I know out there, there are firefighters that would be, would, well, I'll tell you one other, one other thing that I'm going to yield back to you. I was teaching a class once and I was talking about under what conditions command should order interior crews to exit. And we were having this conversation with the, in the class and I had about 150 people in this session. And we're right in the middle of this conversation. One firefighter stood up and here's what he said. I would rather die in a fire than be ordered out. And I'll tell you, Nick, there are a few things that leave me speechless, but that left me speechless. I didn't know what to say. I was waiting for him to say, no, no, just kidding. He wasn't kidding. I mean, he was angry that we were even having the conversation that firefighters would ever, under any circumstances, be ordered out. So I, I kind of, I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere to engage him in front of 150 people. You know, there was no win. There was no loss. There was just, just move on with the topic. But then we took a break and we took a break. Three firefighters come up to talk to me and say, hey, we talked to you, man. I said, sure. What's on your mind? And they're like, no, we want to talk privately. So we, we went off into the, uh, another little area there at the conference center where I could talk to them privately. And I said, what's up? And they said, Mr. Di Mr. Rather would die in a fire as our officer. And he every morning he tells us we're going in on every fire and you're either with me or you're not. And if you're not, you might as well bid to another company because there's no place for a coward in my company. And they're like, what do we do? And I said, well, I can't tell you what to do here. We're on a 10 minute break. I said, <laughs> but take, take my business card and I'll follow up with you or you follow up with me and I'll give you some ideas. And I, you know, and they did follow up with me. They're genuinely concerned. And uh, in, the, in the course of the conversation with them, one of the things I asked was, What's his home life like? Oh, he's been divorced three times. He has no relationship with his kids. And I'm like, okay, so what you're describing for me is somebody who has nothing to live for. Right. Yeah, pretty much. Well, mm. there's part of the problem, you know, when you, when you don't have nothing to live for, there's, there's no risk you're not willing to take because you, you, you have nothing at home to, to go home. You know, no one's waiting to give you a hug and a kiss and say, thanks for showing up at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a bad, bad situation for some people mentally between the balance between self-esteem and ego. I get nervous when the young and the restless get exposed to that scenario and says, we're going in boy, you know, boys, girls, whatever. And they take it hook, line and sinker. And they're, they're just 
they're they're following the leader, but they have never maybe been exposed to other leaders, or they've never been exposed to someone who's a little bit more cautious or whatever. That, that everybody's made up differently. And what what makes me very nervous is when we have I don't want to call them wannabes, when we have again the young and the restless who are looking to follow something in their life for whatever reason they they need uh they need uh, someone to follow to make them feel worthy to make them feel whole and they they get one of these guys you know that doesn't buckle his waist strap uh doesn't always have was well, got gloves on but they're not fire gloves they're constructs they're those little leather gloves whatever pick whatever you want and that's their hero and and they're and they're they're lemmings they're they'll fall and it's to correct those is not easy because you are obviously we may have a talented person there but they they may not be even when you want them to be what they want to be you may not want to do that because someone's they're going to go down a they're going to go down a long road because they literally either believe it's like that scene from uh um from Forrest Gump with, with Lieutenant Diane. Uh, every one of his relatives has died in a war and he's laying there with both legs missing and he says, leave me here to die, it's my destiny, right? Yeah. It's that- you denied, no. me, you denied me of my destiny. I'm supposed to die here in honor like everybody in my family has. That's right, <laughs> no, no. And they, they, they show those, back, those flashbacks of the Civil War, the Revolutionary yeah. War, World War I, all his relatives falling over and dying. Yeah, it's my dying. destiny. Yeah, I, you know, I had a, I had a, uh, I, I was, um, oh, some group in Facebook where somebody had posted something about uh, something that happened at a fire and somebody who, and I'm, I'm going to just leave their name out of it because it, it really doesn't factor so much in the story, but somebody who was very experienced from a very large fire department um whose nickname might rhyme with fdny <laughs> was went onto the feed and and was laying down some wisdom about being calculated about decision making and go and no go and there's times when we should go and times when we shouldn't go and we better be smart about it if we want to live the fight another day and I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, and I loved seeing that wisdom shared by that person that, you know, I've seen a couple of fires in their career, right? So then in, in the comment section, somebody is speaking to that comment, and they said, when I read that comment, a little bit of vomit came up in my throat. Wow. So I clicked on the, I clicked on the profile of that person. They were 19. 19 years old, they're getting vomit in their throat from this person who's who's been around FDNY for 30 to 40 years, laying down some wisdom about how to be smart in the job you do. And they got vomit in their throat at 19. Oh, that is the, the prime example, Nick, of the one you talk about, the young and the restless being influenced by the wrong person to have a to have stinking thinking about 
priorities on an emergency scene. I mean, there, there, yeah, there are times when we got to take great risks to save someone, and I'm all, and I'm all for it when it makes sense. But we can't say always and never. Nothing about what we do can be always and never. I just get, I just get upset um, when, again, the, I've got not to be graphic, but I've got underwear older than this this person has and um it, it was a it was a thing where we um oh i'm trying to think it has something to do with cancer where as a cancer fundraiser i think it was maybe the mustaches or letting the beard I, I can't remember what it was and this this guy said this awful comment and said because that's what real men do and i i I've lost some good, great friends and dear friends and friends, relatives and stuff. And I lit them up and I said, you, do you have, have you ever experienced a loved one with cancer? Blah, blah. And then the answer I got back was, dude, I was just being funny. And no, no, no. You because no. you're, you're, you're writing checks you can't pay or you're, you're talking and you don't know what you're talking about. And that's, you know, that's one of those little pet things that I, I believe, listen, I'm all excited about young folks. I think the young folks now are taking, are getting a, a, a rough break that they're not as bad as everybody says they are. They just need, maybe they just excel in different things. And we don't understand. Um, you know, we've, I've had numerous, not numerous. I've had a couple of classes where I couldn't get my computer to do what I wanted it to do back when we were Zooming and we're trying to put videos on Zoom and, and all this stuff, you know, kid shows up. Again, I'm like, did you did you graduate elementary school? I mean, this, and young kids, and they're like, here you go. Oh, thanks. I don't know, right? And so we all have, we all have talents. We all have, we also have needs. And I, I get nervous when, we force them in some in some cases it is being forced upon them that they have to do things the way we did things when we were younger and that's that why why change their programming i think they we don't want them being counterproductive to doing the right things but they may come up with better ways to do things than we do now right and i think they're they look at it, one of the we've had a lot of discussions on how they communicate and you know they don't they don't give you a way out it's a yes no answer it's a win lose black and white whatever you want to call and so it's hard to take a deep breath let's let's talk about what you're talking about not what your demands are why why do you feel this you know and you have to sometimes you have to dig into there and open them up crack that shell and find out what's really like you said what's going on why is that the question about his home life was right on par because you know, you're, he's just a miserable guy. He's just a miserable guy. And think about the mutiny that, so let's make this even worse. So that company is given a job or that company self, because it sounds like this guy would self-assign himself. And again, I don't know, but this guy self-assigned himself to a high-risk operation. Now he's got an incident commander behind him. He's either going to be real happy or real upset. And even if he's real happy, suddenly the two behind them don't have confidence in his skills or that they're taking him down death row. So now this guy's got to deal with a mutiny 
or this combat, internal combat, never mind the fire combat. It just, those, and those are those unexplained, those are the things that, what happened? Right? Those are the things that don't make it into the reports. Is that, yeah, this, this person tried to do something. I, example, if you remember back in the day when we first started doing bailouts, there was a captain in San Francisco. Someone asked him about it. He doesn't know how to do it. He doesn't know how to set the ladder up. He doesn't know anything about it, but he knows how to go out head first. And he goes out and smashes his head and breaks his neck and dies. Right? His, his thought process, I guess, was good intended. Right? He was trying to do it. We ended up having to go testify, for lack of a better term, in front of our fire commission because we were teaching our recruits how to bail out. And the only thing that saved me was I had a local firefighter who had just done that at a fire. And he was around because he had done that. And he was able to, after the, after it blew, he was able to get back in there and continue the fight, right? That's the only thing that saved that evolution. And now that's a regular thing, right? I don't know of any recruit class or any firefighter one class that doesn't do a head first bail correctly with safety, you know, with safety equipment and all that. But I've seen a lot of guys come down head first because they needed to, and their boots were smoking. There was no, there was no doubt that that was the play. That was the move to make because they weren't going on the, going out the way they came in. Right it's just, on. you know, it, it, let me ask you, what's your, what's your take on if it's predictable, it's preventable. There's a loaded question. Uh, I don't think that's, I don't think that's completely accurate. Um, well, one, I don't, I don't know that ever, everything after the fact seems predictable <laughs> after the right. fact and in the moment on monday morning things, on monday morning it's predictable <laughs> right that, that's right and it's very easy for somebody who's um a critic to be able to look at the flawed judgment of someone else after the fact and say they should have they could have they i would have never what were they thinking you know the the judgment that comes from critics of of people who make high risk decisions almost always come from somebody who wasn't there and they don't even know anything about the stress the person was baking in in the moment of their high risk decisions and they'll say well you should have been able to predict that was going to happen I, after the fact that that seems very logical to say that but in the moment, it's much harder, uh, especially for somebody who hasn't practiced predictive abilities. It's a lot harder for them to be able to predict things if they don't have a skill set on being predictive out of getting ahead of what is happening and seeing, anticipating what's going to happen next and happen next. But after the fact, everybody's got beautiful predictive abilities. and you know, to, to throw a phrase like that almost, in, in my opinion, makes the whole process seem way too simple, you know, because it's a very simple phrase. And if you break it down, it's, 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 it's the math doesn't work. There's, there's a, there's a lot of, there's, I, there's a lot of challenges. I have, there's personal challenges I have with being able to to abide by that belief. Because um, I think that in the perfect world, in the perfect world, predictable is preventable. 
you show me the firefighter that works in the perfect world <laughs> where everything uh, is predictable with, with perfect information in the moment with complete understanding of what is happening I've i think people i've not people seen don't it. people don't take into effect the fog of war they, they these monday morning folks they don't take into effect that the pumps screaming it's raining whatever whatever unusual you know thing you want to th throw in there is is happening one thing that really sets me off and i i imagine it does to you too so we look at facebook or whatever and here's a picture of usually it's a rural fire department maybe not maybe a suburban fire department and there's a picture of, of four guys standing outside of a building and uh they're looking at the building and the, there's fire blowing out the second floor window right and, the, and there's always some quote what are you waiting for why aren't you doing your job but whatever whatever it may be and it's kind of like that photo that uh prince charles had where it looked like not all of his fingers were up yeah right. like only one but when you turn the picture and that's mm -hmm. and that and i happened to recognize that photo and that's what it was over here there were no they had blown the horns and evacuated the building because what they couldn't see was the entire rest of the building was on fire right but we make assumptions when we look at these pictures or we look at someone else's fire or someone else's situation that we know everything about what's going on in that scene in this in this little picture that you don't even get to see motion on and and these guys are a bunch of slugs you, you have no idea. You have no idea what's going on right there. The person who comments on those negatively is showing their own ignorance to the belief that they could look at a snapshot. Now, consider the shutter speed of a camera. What is that? That's um, let's just say twenty five hundredths of a second, so that they could look at a snapshot of time captured in 25 hundredths of one second and somehow pass judgment on everything that happened before that, that's that's a show of ignorance. Nick, I'll, I'll have, like, there'll be videos of incidents. Maybe the video is 20 minutes to an hour long. I'll, I'll have people like tag me and say, what do you think about this? And my answer is, inevitably i have no opinion about no what happened here until i would know a lot more about what happened here i'm only seeing one perspective from one angle i'd have to talk to the people involved to find out what they just because you know something because you saw it captured on somebody's video doesn't mean the person on the sharpest end of that decision had any idea that what you're seeing was happening. It doesn't mean they knew it, or you heard something on the radio. It doesn't mean they heard it. It doesn't even mean they heard it or understood it. Just because you, you know, you heard it in the background of, you know, of radio traffic, you know, you're, there's so much more complication to human factor and human error. And those who think they can judge all that based on what they're seeing and hearing are just showing their ignorance as to how little they truly understand about situational awareness and high-risk decision-making. And and if anything, if I would ever say anything, it would be in defense, even when the outcome looks horrible and the 
you know, and all the judgments being thrown, if I would say anything at all, it would be in defense of the people involved in the incident saying how unfair it is to judge to judge this based on a snapshot or to judge this based on a five minute video or to judge this based on the, the belief that from what you're seeing, you understand everything that's happening. Stop this people. You know, this, this does nothing to better our profession to sit behind your keyboard and pass some high level judgment about how much better and smarter you would have been in that scenario than the people who are involved. You, you have no right to put yourself on that holy pedestal. I, I had the honor of working. I, I can't tell you how many. I've, I've had the honor of, of working with several fire chiefs that have lost firefighters. Actually, I worked with Dennis Rubin twice. He, over, over a four-year period, he lost two firefighters. Um, and But I so I have been fortunate to get some of the background or some of the stuff that would not normally not normally make it out in and almost inevitably in all those cases my answer was oh my god that the, the, the whatever the situation was whatever the condition was whatever happened would would stump anybody I, I, two, two, I had so I had two a uh, good friend of mine, Danny Krasinski from East uh, Franklin, uh, New Jersey. Uh, we we lost a great young man. They lost a great young man. They were doing everything right. Thank God he had a good fast team, or else he would have lost three more guys. Ended up in a in a in a, um, a, a, a Puzio, Kevin Apuzio ended up in a basement collapse. Three or four months after that, a great chief out of uh, Green Bay lost a firefighter same thing two went in one came out in a, in a in a collapse you can ask captain tompkins i am a nut particularly we have 200 year old 250 year old houses if, if we had anything going on one of the first things i'd have the fast team do was go to the basement i i needed to know i had seen what it had done to these men i needed to know that there wasn't a, a, a snake waiting from in the, that wasn't a, a problem waiting in the basement for us, right? Because I of that exposure to what how that went and and what it did to these these great bosses, and they their people weren't doing anything wrong. Their people were following all the rules. Nothing was obvious. In fact, Danny did a Billy G, and Danny I think they went to firehouse and they may have gone to the FDIC and did. Um, not everybody comes home. And that was the story of Kevin Apuzio, uh, of that they they literally, I mean, they had one fighter had his foot on the front porch, another Kevin was about to step on the front porch, or the other firefighter, and then the, they fell from behind. Danny pulled one firefighter, they landed on the front lawn, and luckily they had the fast team there. They put a pencil letter and they got two more out, but Kevin, the victim, and the sofa were underneath the everything else. So they so. So even in the best of circumstances, doing the right things, sometimes stuff's going to happen. So it's, I just find it easy. Sometimes people are just real quick on the guns to, to, to complain about something they have no idea. And a lot of these things have extenuating circumstances nobody saw coming. 
And it would, one of the it would have been a challenge. One of the things, one of the things I share often is the judging mind cannot be a learning mind. We can either judge or we can learn. You can't judge and learn at the same time. If you're judging, you're too busy, your mind's all consumed in, in <clears throat> judgment, finding fault and blame. When you set aside the judging mind and you put on the learning mind, you have a fundamental switch in how your brain is processing what's happening. The judging mind says, what in the world were they thinking when they did that? The learning mind says, why did what they were doing at that moment in time when things went bad, why did that make sense to them? It doesn't have to make sense to you. Try to understand with a learning mind why that made sense to them. And, that, and then you'll learn something versus judging and saying, well, that just didn't make sense. That was the dumbest thing I'd ever seen. What the heck were they thinking? You, you learn nothing. And that's what you see in a lot of these Facebook responses is people, people are all wrapped up in judgment instead of saying, why? That must have made sense to them for some reason. I'm sure they didn't show up and say, hey, everybody, turn your cameras on. We're going to die here. <laughs> the, what they were doing somehow made sense to them. And, and if you peel back enough layers of human factor to get to the true root of human error, which, by the way, is never situation. Flawed situation awareness is not a root cause. It's a symptom. Something else caused the awareness to be flawed. Keep peeling back, peeling back. And then when you get to the to the true cause, then you have enlightenment. And so, then what happens many times is responders will be like, holy cow, their world and the world I live in really aren't that far apart. I could have made that same mistake now that I look at it in a whole different lens. But when you're busy judging, you don't look at it through that lens. So one of the things you said that, that, that I from my other world is root cause analysis right five whys why did why did this happen well because of this okay why did that happen because of this why did that happen right and we just peel down and back and we just keep peeling and saying asking the question why did this happen why was that decision made what led to that what led to that what led to that and finally somewhere's back here right somewhere's hopefully where it started if you get all the way back to the true root cause you go aha aha well because we when we look at it from a community risk reduction that's where we're trying to get to we're trying to get to that this is the this is the tip where the the snowball became the boulder which became the right the avalanche or whatever this is what tripped all these other wires and that's how we got to this to this point here Again, we don't teach that. We we don't. It's much easier to to say I wouldn't have done that, or what the hell was that all about? Right. And you don't know. Listen, we live in a small world. We have four people driving four trucks. The mission, and you can ask Captain Tompkins. The mission was put the fire out before the chief gets there. That gave eight minutes to do that. The whole mission was get one line in in position, and it literally took the entire shift. Because two and two, plus we had two people coming for backup. It would take the entire shift to get that one line 
safely into operation. Actually, probably a little unsafely, but as safely as we could make it to get that one line in operation. That was the mission. And everything got better after that. If we were able, if we successfully did that in that initial operation worked, everything else got better. And if we didn't, we were going to be here for a long night. It's just, it's just how we rolled. And that's, but that's what the expectation was, our expectation and, and also the, our elected officials expectation. They realized we don't have in New York City, and this is one of my other pet peeves, we don't have 32 people arriving because they got a second source, all of which are working in companies with a supervisor uh, or they're working as teams and they're, they're trained and bred that way, right? We can, however you feel about that. But that's not that's not us. We'll put eighteen we'll put eighteen people on the scene before eight minutes. We'll meet for seventy uh, seventeen ten, whatever, as a combination system with mutual aid partners. We'll we can get that many bodies there, but you know that's how we that's how we tried to solve that problem is to put us in the best shape. But there's going to be times it's not going to be good enough, and so our mission was don't kill anybody. If, if if we have to stop what we're doing and pull everybody out, that's what we're going to do. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying that, and that was without a whole lot of situational awareness. That's with like one trip around the, the building and knowing the buildings in our district. You know, that's as close to situational awareness as we got. <laughs> right? That really was. Yeah. Other than some trips and some field trips and some Medical calls, thank goodness for medical calls where we're, oh, look at this, this door, this stairway doesn't go anywhere. We'll try to remember that, right? Or, right, listen, do you know there's three apartments in this two apartment house? The, the basement or the attic's been occupied now. Those, those are the kind of situational uh, awarenesses that we, um, you know, we get. And, and I should mention, because uh, you mentioned it before, so... This whole passion that you've been leading here is situational awareness matters. <laughs> Not Sam matters, but situational awareness matters. Yeah. And, 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 if, and, if, and if it's important because csamatters.com is where the resources are. If you do Sam matters, those resources, at, and Jamie's again on top of it as always, she's got it in the, it, it's in the chat. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll sometimes have people send me an email. So I can't find your website. I tried Sam Matters, and it's like it's not <laughs> Sam Matters. It's S A Matters, but the S A M all capitalized makes it look like Sam. And people call it Sam as a short, you know, a shortened abbreviation to the whole topic. They call it Sam all the time, and I'm okay with that. But if you try to find the website Sam Matters, you won't find it because it's S A matters.com yeah <laughs> well when we were when we were talking at our county chiefs association and doing our our advertising there we i called you the sam guy <laughs> well that's okay see if you do yeah that and people you know i even have this uh little mascot that i carry in and his name is sam you know and right. uh right. so it it's you know to say it's the the whole topic is sam you know if somebody um if somebody affiliates with the topic by just remembering Sam, that's that, that's that that's wonderful. <laughs> you know, at least at least it's, you know, as long as they know what Sam stands for, then then we're 
then we're golden. Maybe I should have been better at how I marketed that. <laughs> I think you're doing fine. You've got all these books. You get... Hey, what I want to do, because we're turning the corner here. <laughs> Tell us, but so we we talked a lot about emergency response. Let's talk about industry. Let's talk about businesses. You know, I, I always, uh, we, we use uh, the newest thing at the fire Academy is the Socratic, Socratic uh, questioning and stuff like that to get people to start talking and ask questions. Yeah. Yep. One of the th things we talked about though, is what, so from a, from a private industry uh, perspective, what are you seeing as the things that are really uh, that had your your mission has helped them with? Yeah. In other words, yeah. so, as opposed to the fire stuff, the yeah. private industry stuff. Yeah. So let me share with you quick how the industrial stuff come along because all I was focused on was training firefighters, and that was it. I mean, that was that was in a single lane focused, mission-driven, help firefighters be safer, improve decision-making, da, 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 da. And then out of the blue, in 2014, I got a phone call from a company. They said, uh, we want you to come down and do some training for our company. And, and I said, you've got the wrong person. I don't train companies. I train firefighters, not industry. And uh, I said, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not the one that you need. And and they said, no, 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 no. We've been to your website, which, by the way, on the website are right now over 400 articles. Maybe back in 2014, maybe there were only 200 articles, but there were hundreds of articles on my website on situational awareness, high risk decision making, problems that go, you know, off the rails. They said, we've been to your website. We've read the articles. You are absolutely the person that we need. You're the problems you're talking about are exactly the problems that we're having. Wow. So I still was unconvinced and they wanted, they wanted this week long of training. They had 900 people to train. And I said, well, before I waste your time and your money coming down there and training when I don't think it's going to fit what you do, <laughs> can I come down and see what you do? do a little kind of like site assessment. And so they invited me down and uh, the safety guy kind of toured me around. And, uh, oh, which by the way, um, I said to them, I said, well, what do you do? And they said, well, we, we take weapons grade uranium and we down blend it to, <laughs> a, to a grade of uranium that can power nuclear submarines. We power the nuclear Navy with this uranium and I'm thinking holy cows if I mess this up there's going to be a hole where Tennessee used to be you know <laughs> talk about pressure uh but I went down I toured and absolutely I saw the connection between what I was teaching to first responders to what their challenges were were and uh so I did I did training for them in 2014 and they are still my client today nice. I still do training for them so I thought, well, it was a one-off, one-off. Okay, a company found me on a Google search. Well, then another did, and another did, and another did. And I thought, well, geez, maybe there's something to this. And uh, so now if somebody goes to my website, my website is bifurcated. It says, if you're business and industry, click here. And if you're a first responder, click here. Because I realize now that I've got something to offer for both industry and first responders on 
situational awareness and high risk decision making. And uh, you know, I told you I just come. I was just in Canada for two weeks, um, and I was doing training at an oil refinery. Now that just that one refinery has been my client since 2017, and I've spent. And I know exactly this number, and I'll tell you why I know this number. I've spent 167 days since 2017, 167 days on site at their facility, training their oil refinery process operators on situational awareness, both at a beginner level and then an intermediate level. So two levels of training for their operators. And you might say, well, how do you know you've been there 167 days? Are you that anal? Well, I I got that anal because it wasn't until the 164th day that I got to see the Northern Lights, the Aurora Borealis. I I saw them. I saw those pictures. Yeah, that happened on the 164th day. I'd like, because I I mean, I wanted to see it. I wanted to see it bad. and, And it was almost... I mean, I was just getting ready to leave in just a couple of days. And yeah, if you saw the pictures, then you know. And so that happened on day, I had to like, how many days have I been here and not seen it? 164 <laughs> days. Um, but so, you know, once I get connected with these companies and and again, I'm not, I'm not one who picks up the phone and cold calls. Almost everybody finds me on a Google search. And then they reach out and say, hey, we think you might be able to help us. And sometimes... It's, it's going to work out that I can. Sometimes they want something that, you know, just is outside my wheelhouse. They'll be like, can you do situational awareness for diversity, equity, and inclusion? And, and you know, <laughs> I'm not opposed to that. I'm not opposed to that as a topic that is important for a company to learn about, but that's not my wheelhouse. And, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, or can you do something on hazmat response? And that's not my wheelhouse, you know. Ooh, hey, listen, if very, that happens again. Very, <laughs> If that happens yeah, again, yeah. I know a guy. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, if you're out and you come along, like your next time you're at Phillips 66, you say, hey, how about situational awareness for your for your right. oil refinery operators here? So we could we could maybe make something work here mutually. But um, so I, I stay in my lane. It's a very narrow lane, just trying to help workers develop and maintain situational awareness and improve high-risk decision-making to reduce near misses and tragedies and 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 that's it. I mean, that's that's the whole that's the whole thing. And and there's there's a lot I get asked to do that I just can't do because I don't know enough about it. And and I don't try to speak to what I don't know about. And listen, there's something that could be said for that because I know several people without identifying anybody. Uh, yeah, we can figure that out. Yeah, right? we'll come up with. And some of these guys are great instructors in what they do. And then sometimes when they wander out, we see this, sometimes we see this at the FDIC where they wandered outside their lane. Um, yeah. And they, they shortly they realize that they need to get back in their own lane. Yeah. Um, well, I, yeah, I had, uh, I had a, a lot of interest from policing for situational awareness for policing. And I'm like, that's not really my, my lane. I don't know, you know, I've, I've never had to draw down on somebody, you know, like, you know, you see like what happened here in Nashville. It's like, that's so outside my lane. But so what I did is I brought on an associate who's a police officer and I trained him on 
situational awareness and high-risk decision-making, and he's a master instructor for me now. And then he and I co-authored a book for policing on situational awareness, but it was his expertise. You know, I can't, I can't even begin to get into the mindset of, of what it must mean to actually pull the trigger and kill a human, you know, and what that stress, whether they, you know, whether they're a perpetrator or not, you know, just the, just the mere act of taking a life has got to be stressful. You know, you know, there's got to be some element of decision-making there that has you wondering, you know, am I, am I doing the right thing? Am I not doing the right thing? Uh, you know, kill or be killed or, you know, so I partnered with him so that we could put something out there for policing, but he's the, he's the expertise, the expert knowledge, the street knowledge behind that. So when we wrote the book, I could write from the perspective of how do we, how does the brain function when we're making high risk decisions? And then he can apply it to how it affects police officers and how to train to be better at it. And, you know, it, this thing that happened in Nashville is just like the exclamation point on officers who were really dialed in, had exceptional, Absolutely. exceptional communication skills, exceptional situational awareness, very, um, um, uh, in the moment, mindful of what they were doing. It was just, it was. If you, if I, I, I agree. If you watch that video and then you watch what little snips have been leaked out of Texas, whew, apples and oranges. And I gotta tell you yes. what, that is the, 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 the first, the first camera we get to see the guy taking his, that took his weapon out of the back of the trunk. That is the politest guy I have ever seen. He's he is getting ready to lock and literally locking and loaded. And the principal or whoever it was wasn't principal because she was gone. The whoever comes up and gives me, she goes, "Thank you, ma'am." It's just like, just like I'm getting ready to do what I've trained my whole life to do. And this lady gives me good intel, and I'm like, "Thank you, ma'am." Just like, just so calm. And then mm -hmm. if you, if I was very impressed with. The little things, long weapons before short weapons, just these, all these, and he's going, come on, you got, and he was all over it. I mean, he really was very direct. He obviously was leading that pack, whether he, I don't think he was an officer. I think he was sergeant. I think he was just the right guy at the right place. He's got all these other guys running around. Nope, go that, nope, go this way. You go, no, nope, you go first, right? And and then he had no, no regret, no recession to taking that weapon and using it appropriately one time was there you know what i mean I it was just we, it was just amazing yeah i think what we got to see was the the end product of good preparation in other words if you looked if you looked at what those officers did in nashville you'd be a fool to think that happened by accident <laughs> no but if you also looked if you, if you also looked at what happened in texas you'd be a fool to think that happened by accident in both cases, it's a matter of preparation and be, being mentally prepared for to take those actions. And you saw one where there was like high level mental preparation and and resolve and conviction. And you saw the other the other the other scenario looks like a, almost like a 
like a fog of war, like a state of confusion on what should be done. You know, it was, it was just there. They literally are two almost dichotomous case studies of the best and worst based on, I believe, based on preparation. I, I, I agree 100%. I can't, I can't say that with conviction because I don't really know the backstory of either organization's preparation for the event. Although I was, I think I did hear that the, the Covenant Church had done an active shooter um, scenario that involved the police department. Again, that's just coming to me secondhand information, whether they did or didn't. But you know, the, it's pretty rare for somebody to accidentally fall into success so well as, as they did in Nashville. I don't think there was anything, I don't think there was anything by accident or block-based about what they did. That was, that was pure application of skill and practice. I, I agree 110%. We've done those I was very, when I, when the fire alarm was going off, I gave, you know, we trained, we, when we did our program, uh, I was very lucky. They, so the law enforcement council was working on a program. They delivered it to all the cops. Now it's time to go unified. And they came to the incident management team and said, listen, we work very good by ourselves. We don't work very good as teams. We need your help. Um, particularly since we're going to need medical, we're going to need this, we're going to need that, blah, blah. So we took a whole year to write, and we didn't even call it a policy. They wouldn't let us call it a policy or procedure, a scope of practice or a scope of something or other. It was a cop thing. And we said, you can call it anything you want. This is what we're going to do. And it, I'm very proud to say it's migrated its way across the state. But, but one of the things we do is on the last night, we would go someplace with an automatic fire alarm system and we'd make them function with no lights on just the strobes going off and just the noise and and make them do what they have to do in packaging and tourniquets and all that other good and all that other good stuff nice chief we've been going for two hours man <laughs> <laughs> so what are you saying we need to take a pee break go for two more <laughs> yeah <laughs> no I uh, we've actually we we've actually outlasted our guests exception with exception of I'm willing to bet that's Alan at the Lemon yeah. Fire or two that or his he's key. probably he's probably faced out on his keyboard. <laughs> hey, did you hear this latest thing about you know um you get a kick out of this as an educator? Uh one of the one of the companies uh what's the name of that company that does all the, your training online for you? And keeps track oh, target of solutions target solutions okay yeah. and target solutions how they monitor you is they don't have anybody looking at you how they monitor you is your mouse when you move the mouse someone's there you give a fireman a challenge he's going to come up with a solution so that this this kid told me he's like god i'm all over this what they do is they put the mouse on top of the kid's phone and they set the phone for 45 minutes. So at 45 minutes, the phone goes and the mouse moves. We're good for another 45. <laughs> True story. I was like, I was at the fire academy and I was in front of this old big fancy 
group that was going to do a bunch of education changes. And when they ever told that story, I was like embarrassed. And I almost burst out laughing. It was all I could do not to lose my mind. And I just kind of snuck out in the hallway. And then all you hear was, <laughs> can you imagine? Figure it out. There, there, uh, there's a saying that says, when you think you've made something foolproof, along will come a smarter fool. Yep. You'll figure it out. <laughs> That's listen. right. Yeah. So listen, thank you just so much. Yeah, I, I thank you. We actually went long for us, which is exciting for me. I think uh I, I really do give I love the give and take. Um, but we do this is gonna be this is being recorded. So again, what what what's new? What's next for you? Where are we going next? Um, well, I guess what I'd want your uh listeners and viewers to know about are the resources available. So essaymatters.com website, 400 plus articles, all free for uh, for the for them to read or download and share with their crews. Uh, I have a podcast that is uh, 392 episodes um, that's on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, iHeartRadio, radio.com. It's also video on YouTube. So the podcast is SA Matters Radio. The YouTube is SA Matters TV. If somebody wants to find it and subscribe to it. And again, that's all free to use. Um, written seven books. The books and videos are available in the store on the website. I have a learning management system that's you can access that um, through through the website as well. And there is a cost for that, but are there's classes on there. Are you selling that? your stuff through are you selling your stuff through Pendwell as well? Or is this or no? I, I, no, I do have a Penwell book on situational awareness. So it's available through their website or it's available through my website. And really the only difference but from buying it from them or from me is if you buy it from me that I have a I have an inventory of them here and I'll sign it, you know, I'll sign a little personal message to you and and send it off to you. And the commission I make, whether they sell it or I sell it, is the same. So it, you know, the only the only real difference is you get a signed copy if you order it yeah. through my website. And then all my other books are all self-published. Um, so they can get them on, they can get it on uh, uh, Amazon. And again, it won't be signed or they can order it from my website, excuse me, and it will be signed. And, and what we'll do is we'll put the, we'll put the links in the info when, when this podcast is out. So if anybody's listening right now, you can uh, just look on the apps and you'll be able to see links right there. Yeah. And if you would, I prefer if you link the store to my website versus Amazon. And, Absolutely. Um, yep. for, for no other reason that if I sell a book on my website, I'll make like um, $6. And if it's sold on Amazon, then I make like six cents. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, it adds up after it, after a period. Sure of time. No, no author ever gets rich selling a book unless you're like, uh, so what's that Stephen King or, <laughs> or, uh, uh patterson oh, or you know, you know, know. Yeah. here's the yeah here's... ken blanchard somebody like yeah yeah jk rowling yeah. <laughs> i shouldn't say you, you nobody be, gets rich writing books but <laughs> you may be an influence if you're an influencer just that you're for an influencer for the wrong age group <laughs> you <laughs> want to make right. a lot of money you got to influence the young folks 
and way and way on the wrong topic. I mean, really, maybe I should do like situational awareness for wizards or something, and and That's and no. get a video game to go with it. And a hope, video game, there you go. Then, yeah, then I you could I'd be coming to you from my private island. <laughs> situational awareness for passing English. I'm just saying, these are the things that are important to me right now. No, I shouldn't. Say that. It's not true. My kids doing. My kids doing. Um, so yeah, that's about everything that I'd want want folks now, to know. Are you traveling? Are you back on the road? I'm uh I'm kind of on hiatus for a little while. I'm trying to cut back my travel. So um the I I, I with intent have nothing scheduled from May through September. Oh, uh, I, I know who's going fishing. Yeah, so that's yeah that's what i'm doing i've got a grandkids i've got a four-wheeler we're going on a, a fishing trip into a, a canoe fishing trip into canada and and we're, we're doing a remodel of our kitchen which we don't really want to get to talking about here but um uh, you know I, I told my wife tonight after our discussion of decisions to be made about the kitchen remodel if we're still married at the end of this and we've been married 38 years but uh, there's so we're going through we're going through a kitchen remodel from May second to the end of July. Um, so yeah, so with with intent, I've kind of slowed slowed the roll a little bit there, and then I pick it back up pretty pretty heartily in the fall. Um, but I will say, if somebody's interested in having a, a program, um, we'll figure I, you know, it out. I'd be willing, I'd be willing <laughs> to come along and do a, do a program for someone. Um, but I, I mean, I don't want to do. I was doing 10 a month and I don't want to back to lot. 10 a month. Yeah, a and, uh, that is a lot. So if I, if I do, uh, if I, if I do, you know, one or two a month, that that's more the pace I want to roll out right now. I've got trained master instructors that, that they're yeah. out there doing, you know, as much or more than, than I was doing. There's five of them, uh, including one in the Netherlands and they're, you know, they're hitting it pretty robustly. And uh, and I'm just as happy letting them out there carry the message. But if somebody wanted to have a program with a master instructor, I can arrange that. If they want to have me, I could I could arrange that. In fact, my wife and I are thinking about doing a um, during the remodel, doing a get out get the heck out of the house trip. And one of the places we talked about tripping to was New England. So if there's somebody that's interested in a program. Because we're we're thinking about going to Acadia, and then uh, yeah, down, down, down to Portsmouth, and then up toward. Uh, I had done a program for electrical linemen in. Uh, I stayed in Lisbon, New Hampshire, but I can't remember the town I, south of Lisbon. Where I've actually been. The, I've actually stayed in that same town. Yeah, so we're thinking about doing a, a New England trip. So if somebody would be interested um they could probably get a pretty good deal because we're probably going to be you're in the neighborhood bouncing, bouncing around yeah bouncing around the hood <laughs> very good good to know yeah so listen um i'm going to be real quick uh as the chief mentioned we're actually we have a crew at phillips petroleum in um uh, in oklahoma as we speak uh interesting challenges out there and the guys are just excelling, and uh, that's going very well. They'll be hitting some departments on the way back. It is that season. We are rolling out our second hose testing rig. 
uh, and bringing on more testers uh, and more of the pump and uh, ladders and all that stuff testing as well. Um, it is um, um, outage season. So we've already started where we've had uh, teams already providing safety services, confined space services, uh, front, front check-in guard services uh, at power plants. And that was that's gonna be crazy from now until the end of the summer. We've got some pretty big projects going on. Um, so again, we're looking for help there. Um, and we're just really excited. I think we just, uh, we were just really busy doing a lot of good stuff. And uh, we are, we have some interesting opportunities um, to help out some folks that are trying to learn how to work in the general industry environment safely. Um, so we're working with some um, uh, local regional uh, efforts to get some folks tuned up in their OSHA 10s so that they can go get a job make some money and send some money home and, and take care of their families here. So we're just real excited about that. It's, uh, it's something my boss really cares about a great deal is trying to let everybody realize that, you know, you, you can, you can make a living in this industry, uh, in the state, in the in, in industry safely, as opposed to being an expendable resource. And uh, right. we see too much of that sometimes in our, in our world. So we want to make sure these people are safe. And so uh, he's been very good that way. So uh, Chief, Doc, whatever. <laughs> Rich, thank you so much. Uh, great oh. night. Um, uh, do you have any comments or suggestions for us that we could do things better? Nope. Just thanks, Jamie, for running everything behind the scenes. You'd be like, my God, you're, you're cutting it. You're cutting into my whole week, my whole evening here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, no. But honestly, I, I honestly, we... We just appreciate oh. you giving us your time, honestly. Thank you. You're welcome. Jamie's the best partner I could have. She keeps me out of trouble. I can't <laughs> I tell try. you how much she keeps I me out of trouble. Nick, I try. <laughs> me and my computer. My computer doesn't like me. Matter of fact, the last computer doesn't like me. I think there's a message there. I'm just not positive. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody likes Listen, Enjoy Minnesota. Min I have to say my way, Minnesota, right? Because you're up, you're up there by Canada. We are, yeah. There's still a couple feet of snow out there, and it's supposed oh, to snow man. at the end of this week and into the, and the beginning of next week as well. I saw so a picture. You're all you're all cutting grass. We're still shoveling snow. I'm sure you saw the picture from California. There's a dude on skis, and he has his hand on the wire. The top wire for the tram. No, I didn't see that. He's he's literally the tram that's that's 30, 30. 40 feet up in the air. He's wow. he's got his skis, he's in his skis, and he has his hand laterally on one of the rollers. On one oh, of the rollers. I know California is they said shot. that this, they they did say that this may take care of the drought for Colorado. Yeah. Yeah, that's just, that's what I've heard too. So that that'll be the upside. I've seen some pictures of people getting their like dug out of their houses, like the, oh the, snow, the snows to the top of the roof of their house, and they're having to dig down to you know just the crazy part is if you're, that was if you're in your house and you got a screen door, unless you stayed ahead of it, it was it was snowing, you can't get out. 
No, yeah. and it it shows the pattern of the door. I, I, here's the wild thing: if that wasn't, if that was at a mine, or if that was concrete, that would be a confined space. Oh yeah, well right? that's confined space with the snow, no doubt. Right? It's, yeah, it's forty feet up in the air, one yeah. way in, one way out. Not normally yeah. inhabited. <laughs> right? It's just right. crazy. The only good news is it won't catch fire. <laughs> Not the snow, anyway. All right, <laughs> no. sir. The house could burn down within the snow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like its own little sprinkler system. Yeah. Just crazy. All right. Thank you so much. Great Such night. Such a pleasure Thank you. to meet you. All Appreciate right. it. Nice meeting you. Thanks a lot. Bye -bye.